heavily armed far-right militias on our streets and the 2020 election. Could this be the start of a civil war? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. It's long been assumed that underlying support of any country's military and war making is the shared belief that such policies terribly expensive in so many ways though they are, serve to keep us safe at home. All of us want to exercise the right to peaceful enjoyment. Americans have long accepted that national defense is the number one priority of our government to keep us safe from the violence of war. There's that old saying, better to fight them there than here. Civil wars are something else, something much worse. They are the most horrible of wars brother fighting brother, the very antithesis of safe at home. In wars of nationalism, the other side is dehumanized and must be dominated and controlled. In a civil war, it's our neighbors, people around us, who are seen as enemies. As voting day fast approaches, we've seen Trump caravans, motorcycles and pickups festooned with big imposing flags. The clear intent is to intimidate as they specifically target what they call liberal enclaves, as with the heavily armed gangs and camouflage who Trump pumped up to liberate state governments. It's about unleashing violence and effectively manipulating the fear of it. Up until the Civil War of the 1860s, and today America has, its, as its core, always been about political change through peaceful means. But in 2020, the president is blatantly, most eagerly trying to destroy the legitimacy of the democratic process. The New York Times on uh, September 25th had this headline. At Pentagon, fears grow that Trump will pull military into election unrest. Our president is assaulting democracy in favor of military solutions. Of course, strong disagreement has always been part of the process, but wars... That's what we've waged on other countries to protect the peace at home. Our guest today has seen wars, and she has young kids who are today asking if war is on the horizon. Andrea Mezzarino writes, My kindergartner overheard a conversation about the police killing of Breonna Taylor in her apartment in Louisville, Kentucky. He asked me whether they might be coming to kill us in our home too. One has to wonder, deprived of personal congeniality, watching the news every dreadful day, what is happening to our kids? This is hardly traditional American politics. Mazzarino's new article on Tom Dispatch is titled, War Zone America? Perspectives on a Riven Nation from a Worried Military Spouse. Andrea Mazzarino, thanks for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you, Bert. It's my pleasure. She is a uh, Tom Dispatch regular who co-founded Brown University's Costs of War Project. She has held various clinical research and advocacy positions, including at a Veterans Affairs PTSD outpatient clinic with Human Rights Watch and at a community mental health uh, agency. She's co-editor of War and Health, the Medical Consequences of the Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, again, thanks. And your essay begins by telling the reader about the detritus from the Civil War being spit out by the earth near your home in Maryland. You observe that it does remind me that the past lingers and that modern America was formed in a civil war. 
end of quote. In 2020, if you look around, it's easy to see Trumpists excited about the prospect of making war on the rest of America. They suit up and camouflage, heavily armed, drive around on their motorcycles and pickups, clearly trying to get a reaction as they play army in our midst. The Trump campaign relies on stirring up violence, hoping to manipulate fear of that violence into votes. You write, increasingly, I can't help thinking about possible new civil wars in this country and the violence we could inflict on each other. Okay, in what ways does the past linger, reminding us that modern America was formed in a civil war? Is it that there are unresolved issues? In what ways does the past linger? I think the past lingers in a variety of ways. The past lingers in that ordinary Americans feel, many ordinary Americans don't feel the need to self-police anymore when they mock um, members of the opposite party. Um, I mentioned a family member who posted a video of an Antifa activist on fire uh, with the 1980s hit Footloose playing in the background. Um, Whether or not the video was even real, that was a shocking moment to me because not recently, not before the last four years, have I seen people so easily um, mock people who disagree with them, um, as I do now. Another way that the past lingers is the fact that we have a president now who, as you said, tries to fire up his supporters um, to threaten others with violence in cities like Portland, um, in cities like Washington, D.C., in cities like Fairfax, where a group of Trump supporters recently tried to block early voters from uh, entering a polling station. Right, physically. I think that, the, the, yeah, physically, I think that the past lingers and that our national leader uses division as a way to stay in power. Um, yeah. And that's, that's not something that I've seen in my lifetime. Nor mine, and I'm sure I'm quite a bit older than you. Talk about your feelings as you look around at the, quote, forest of oaks and elms in the hills around my home, where once upon a time, Americans undoubtedly sought shelter from bullets by their countrymen. It seems ever less far-fetched from, to me that my family could be asked to take part in an armed conflict on American soil. How recent are such feelings, and how can you point to factors that have triggered those feelings in you? I first started to worry about the possibility of a civil war just before the 2016 election, when my family was stationed out in Washington State. And then-candidate Trump suggested that he might not uh, accept the results of a presidential election. And I remember candidate Clinton saying how unthinkable such a thing was. And that was when it first occurred to me and to my spouse that we were witnessing the possible undoing of our democracy, of our peaceful democracy. Since then, I've grown increasingly terrified because it's no longer weird 
to hear a national leader say that. He says it all the time. He hints at it all the time. And my terror just grows now when I look around at the hills around my home because there are reminders of the Civil War here everywhere. There are historical sites related to the Civil War everywhere. And it's hard not to think that this country could be the site of armed conflict, whether a war is declared or not. And certainly, I, I don't know how it can be avoided. In 2016, when he said he wasn't sure he'd recognize the results if he lost, and and now, you know, reiterating the same thing over and over again, they're not, his people love that kind of stuff, and they're they're not going to just, you know, if Biden wins, it's very they're going to I don't know who they're going to attack. At least in the old Civil War, there were borders. You know, those on that side of that political position, those on the other side, it's not like that now. It's all mixed in. And you you write that you've worked in countries without a democracy where people celebrate the misery of their opponents. It's well documented that the president himself thrives on inflicting cruelty to the weakest among us. As a long-term state senator, I can tell you, it was always the case that the other side is the opposition, but never the enemy. Some would say that your concern about this attitude shows weakness and naivete, that of course they're the enemy. You got to be tough. Democrats are now seen as the enemy to be treated as such. How far have we crossed the line, veering into really ugly political situations like you've seen in non-democratic countries? More than a little scary. I think that the metaphor of a slowly boiling frog is really apt when it comes to the way democracy is dismantled. I don't know if our way of life will ever be comparable to modern Russia, where I've worked, but Mm. I do know that equally smart people have thought that their lives weren't going to change that much for the worse until they did until they were looking at a nation where one couldn't be critical of those in power without fearing for their life, for their job, for the safety of their family members. And it seems like we're not that far from there. I've been married to a military submariner for the past 10 years, and just within the ranks of the military, we've seen increasing... (laughs) rates of post-traumatic stress where commanders aren't afraid to use hazing and retaliation against people who criticize them from within their ranks. And that's just sort of one small example of how the United States have be- has grown increasingly militarized and authoritarian in the past few years. Well, we've always been able to dissent, and I, I don't remember who it was that said dissent is the highest form of patriotism. I think about the yes. descent of the uh, the military people on that big ship when the uh, commander, I'm not sure if I have the right uh, title, warned about mm-hmm. COVID-19 and the crackdowns. And it, it, yeah, that that's something new. It's, you know, the people in the military are supposed to follow orders, but, uh, but. <laughs> the Nuremberg trials showed, you know, if, if there's something really wrong, you have a responsibility to do something about it and to stand up. And we've seen groups like the Proud Boys, QAnon, and no doubt others. They remind me of the young men 
from the various European countries who were super excited in 1914 to get out of their boring lives for the incredible adventure of what should be oh, a lovely little war. Of course, there was World War I with its millions of just, you know, killed, uh, horrible stuff. What do you think the appeal of these new militias is? Is it similar? People looking for adventure and, you know, oh boy, it's fun to play army on the streets. What is the... What what draws them to that? I mean, racism, obviously, but what else do you think? I think that probably the underlying factor is fear. I mean, I'm not an expert on the Proud Boys or any of these militias, but right. Michael Moore and other pretty astute social commentators have long said that white Americans are afraid that those others, whether the others are brown or black-skinned or or Jewish or Muslim are coming after them um, and are coming after their privilege. When in fact, you know, as we see with, with, with all of these white supremacist rallies that have taken place, the opposite is true. But I think that it's fear of, of, of righteous indignation by people who have been oppressed and discriminated against for, for centuries in this country um, coming after them. Um, but ultimately, I think that when groups like this state that um, immigrants and minorities are assaulting their values, what they're saying is they're assaulting our privilege, the privilege to, you know, say misogynistic things, say racist things, um, the privilege to never have to self-police. I think that's what, what's at stake here. Oh, interesting perspective. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Andrea Mazzarino, who is talking about her uh, article, uh, War Zone America? Perspectives on a Riven Nation from a Worried Military Spouse. And coming from your personal background, Andrea, you know of the costs of wars, actual wars. You write that, quote, our military service members and their families have toiled for endless years now in Afghanistan, Iraq, and so many other countries across the greater Middle East and Africa under the mantle of establishing democracy and conducting a war on terror. The instability of governments in that region have long compared unfavorably with America's stability and always effective mechanism for the transfer of power peacefully. Of these service members who have seen action in these Unstable countries, quote, they now live in a country that's under-resourced and fractured in ways that are just beginning to resemble, in a modest fashion at least, the very war zones in which they've been fighting. Yikes! Please say more about that. <laughs> well, um, take, take Iraq, for example, and Baghdad in particular. Um, Iraq has grown increasingly sectarian, and especially its cities, um, since the U.S. invaded in 2003. Um, people did live amongst one another. People from different ethnic and religious groups um, lived in more or less integrated neighborhoods um, before the U.S. invaded. But with increasing um, disorder and violence in Iraq um, since we since we invaded, uh, neighborhoods has become more segregated, more sectarian um, over the years. So I think while the U.S. is not becoming more geographically sectarian, as you referenced earlier, 
in our in our conversation, Burr, it is becoming more divided politically. And I think that should violence become commonplace in the United States um, amongst people who oppose one another politically, it's not unheard of uh, for folks to start, you know, sheltering with people who are more like them mm. in terms of political views or ethnicity, um, just like we've seen in the war zones. Boy, it is unbelievable. I mean, you know, I've been a student of history and a proud American patriot for a very long time. And with the exception of the Civil War, our Republican system, with a smaller system of government, has always kept political violence under control, in check. It's made Our system has made violence unnecessary. We've tried and true systems to incorporate change without violence. That's one of our best qualities. Trump, of course, has reiterated that he may or may not leave office even if he's defeated. His, view, his followers have often stated the view that elections can be rigged, they're not legitimate, they're undermining belief in our legitimate system. That may be the case in non-democratic countries that you may have seen, but not here. His son Don Jr. said this just the other day. You may not have seen this. He said, we need every able-bodied man, woman, to join us, an army for Trump's election security. We need every able-bodied man and woman to join an army for Trump's election security. Does that not sound like he's threatening violence by roving militias? I mean, have you seen that in other countries, places where troops have been sent? I have not personally witnessed it. Right. Yeah, this is commonplace in other countries, such as Afghanistan, where election violence is, is... it's just expected. Sure. But now we have this, a, a president's son um, encouraging ordinary Americans to join I mean, what army? The Department of Homeland Security? Um, not clear, but that's just a careless, careless invocation to violence that feels offensive and, and hurtful to me um, coming from a family where, you know, m- my husband has risked exposure to violence in, in significant ways um, to defend what we see as a democracy. You're right. You know, Trump clearly, clearly hates democracy. Uh, he adores his role models like Putin, Kim Jong-un, mm-hmm. Duterte of the Philippines and Bolsonaro of Brazil, Viktor Orban of Hungary, the list goes on. You're right that sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night with a line from former President Barack Obama's recent Democratic National Convention speech still in my head. Do not let them take your democracy. What remains with you about his words and is so frightening? Well, first, President, former President Obama is so averse to any kind of drama. Um, so to see <laughs> to see him tearing up and and speaking of Republicans, Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump as them is striking because you know that he would not do that without a great deal of prior thought. Um, but second of all, it actually does feel like an understatement because if it is normal for an American president to threaten not to accept the results of an election, they've already taken away our democracy to some extent. 
And the same goes, even if this, even if this election went off without a hitch Mm -hmm. and, you know, Biden won, as the polls are now suggesting he, he, he's likely to do. And, and there were a peaceful, there was a peaceful transition of power. I feel like there's still a great deal of work to do to, to recreate a nation where it's not normal to threaten violence in the event of a lost election. <laughs> I think there's a lot of work to do. It used <laughs> that's, to be that's normal. That's why I keep remembering that. Yeah. Oh my goodness! It used to be completely normal. We, <laughs> normalizing Trump is just amazing to me. You know, in addition to the militias under Attorney General William Barr, the military has been called out to do political things, such as disperse protesters to make way for that Trump photo op, fly helicopters very low over protesters, send in secret federal police to kidnap and beat dissenters exercising their rights, and I thought Nixon's Attorney General John Mitchell was bad. What about <laughs> what about this purposeful federal government-sponsored attack on our cherished rights to protest? Where do you see that going? I'm afraid to speculate where I see that going, but it's not good if officials in unmarked cars are arresting peaceful protesters without even reading them their rights or identifying themselves. I, I thought it was really creepy when... The U.S. formed a Department of Homeland Security yes. after 9/11. Oh, it, it sounds it, it sounds uh, just like the president's secret police. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think we're seeing that play out now. In that the president is using not just DHS, uh, but the National Guard and other members of the military to intimidate protesters. And I think that it's up to every American to imagine where that could go. I don't see that stopping with this president because it's not really clear what um, members of his own party would be willing to put the red light on. They they don't seem to want to call him out on stuff. Nothing. No, the enablers are just Nothing. as bad, just as bad. They're, if, they're worse. Yeah. I mean, uh, McConnell, all yeah. those just, they're just Evil, in my opinion. It's amazing to me. Yeah. It's such a switch from how I was brought up. Now, the military and many other countries is often the real seat of power. Now, Trump militarizes everything. The only thing that matters to him is that, as he said, dominance and control. I find it somewhat ironic that the Pentagon, which you know traditionally makes wars, may be there in a position to prevent one. Uh, Many have looked with hope to the military to escort a defeated candidate out of the White House, somebody impersonating the president. Recently, retired General, uh, Lieutenant General uh, H.R. McMaster said, the military will have no role in a transition. In fact, to even talk about it, I think, is irresponsible. Being in a military family, your thoughts, any insights on how the military is feeling about this, about possibly being put in that position and I, I don't I don't know your, your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I can't speak for my husband, but I know that it causes him a tremendous amount of anxiety whenever he hears Trump question the peaceful transition of power, uh, because on the one hand, you know, I think that 
we agree with McMaster that it, it's irresponsible to even imagine the military having to get involved, although that's increase, increasingly in question. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it seems like anybody halfway decent, in other words, anybody halfway willing to question this president publicly seems to leave. So by the time, by the time this, this election comes to pass, who will, who will be there and willing to help if the worst should happen and he needs to be escorted out of the White House? I mean, look at General Tata, um, who, the head policy guy mm-hmm. who is known for his Islamophobic statements, um, his racist statements um, directed at former President Obama. Is he going to be the guy who's responsible for orchestrating a transition of power? I mean, I, I have a hard time seeing that happening. Mm. So I, I think there's a lot of anxiety and um, ambivalence in the Pentagon right now, um, just based on the news and based on, you know, our own family conversations. And I worry about who's going to be in charge and what their decisions are going to be on, you know, November 4th or January 21st, as the case may be. Well, I'm, I'd be shocked if there weren't violence from the, uh, you know, if Trump loses and loses clearly, Mm -hmm. I'd be shocked if there weren't some random violence from the other side, but hopefully, you know, that would be only random violence. Uh, but I, I fully expect that. I do find it fascinating that one of Trump's closest allies is Mohammed bin Salman, ruler of Saudi Arabia. And what's interesting <laughs> about that is what the royal regime in Saudi Arabia f- most fears is its own people. If, God forbid, Trump is reelected, might the Saudi model be applied to the American government, do you think, where the people are the enemy? Well, I sure hope not, but Trump has called journalists enemies of the people. That was that was originally Stalin's term. Oh, right. So it's not that far-fetched, <laughs> um, considering that journalists are ordinary American citizens. To imagine that our national leader and his cronies will increasingly see the people as separate and enemies, separate from and enemies of the U.S. government. Absolutely amazing. It's it's amazing to to hear us even talking about that now as, as something it not is. not just absolutely insane. You know, and the, uh, that Saudi government that he loves so much killed Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist. And as you mentioned, uh, Trump has called for violence against journalists. Recently, uh, a journalist, I can't remember which uh, network, was hit by a rubber bullet, which is nothing just, you know, that's real painful. Uh, you know, and journalism has long been considered a hallmark of democracy. I wonder, I mean, what about freedom of the press? And when they talk about uh, religious freedom, they mean one sect, one set of values, one like semi-official state religion controlling the others, as you say, Islamophobia and, and things like that. I wonder about the First Amendment, you know, the, the, the freedom of the press and freedom of religion and uh, freedom to uh, gather. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, one of the first thoughts that ran through my head 
after Trump was election was elected is that it's only a matter of time before a journalist gets hurt, kidnapped, um, killed, um, because that's I mean, journalists are people he's come after even before he was elected president. Um, and, you know, like Masha Gessen um, has said over and over, you know, believe the autocrat, believe what he says. And if Trump has referred to journalists as enemies of the people, then I think the message he's sending is that we don't live in a country where there's freedom of speech. Mm. Um, so I think that I agree with Michelle Obama that it's going to get a whole lot worse if he's elected for a second term. Oh, I think that um, if he's unrestrained right now, then how unrestrained will he be if if the people give him a mandate to, to lead for four more years? Yeah, and I think that's what we're talking about here, the fear, the legitimate fear that, that all of us have who are not uh, dyed-in-the-wool Trumpers. And what I can't understand is how one can wave a Trump flag and an American flag. It's the antithesis of America. It's not the Constitution. I don't understand how uh, that group, them, there I'm doing it, uh, can claim to be patriotic when it's just, you know, he copies Stalin, as you said. His, his uh, word, fake news, I believe, comes from Mussolini. You know, there are some role models mm -hmm. there. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift. We need everybody involved here. Our guest today is Andrea Mazzarino, who's talking about her article on Tom Dispatch, which I highly recommend. Uh, her article is titled War Zone America? Question mark. Perspectives on a Riven Nation from a Worried Military Spouse. Another thing that concerns me is... There are people who recognize Trumpism as a domestic enemy and suggest things like, burn it all down. They feel that the choice of the DNC on a Democratic Party is not enough to address the radical changes we need and that the system has not worked and can't work, so let's just burn it all down. In the context of preventing a disastrous civil war, what would you say to people like that? I mean, th that, you know, we have, we're not going to really address it. Uh, if Biden wins, he's not going to, quote, fix everything. What, what do you say to people who, who are just so angry they want to burn it all down? Well, I can't speak to where they're coming from, but I think that a lot of people are disillusioned with changes in which the Democrats were active leaders, like globalization, a lot of people were left behind um, as the U.S. opened up to freer and freer trade and movement. Um, wages um, haven't kept pace or increased with inflation um, for many decades now, and it's increasingly difficult to survive in this country. So I think there are deep, deep problems, socioeconomic problems, problems related to these endless wars, which Democratic leaders voted for. And True. I don't think that I, I don't I don't think that Biden's going to fix this. Right. I think that we all need to keep fighting to fix it by speaking out, voting in every election, 
being willing to pay taxes, honestly, <laughs> thinking of yesterday, <laughs> um, until, you know, until the rising tides lift all ships. And um, I, I really think everybody needs, everybody needs to benefit from taxes, um, from the national policies that whoever is in power um, implements. And we shouldn't throw anything out. Uh, we should build on what's good in the Affordable Care Act. Yes. We should, you know, we should use our taxes, um, not for endless war, yes. but to build up our infrastructure and our schools and our hospital system. Um, so I think that's where we should be. Like that's what we should be doing. Um, I don't agree that we should um, burn it down. I think that's that's awful. I think that's that's revolution, and we don't need that. And it's playing right into the hands of Trump. I mean, there was a mm -hmm. demonstration in Absolutely. Portland where uh, Trump used some pictures of violence on the streets as part of his campaign. Uh, it's amazing to me how those people can cannot see that they're playing right into Trump hands when they get violent. I understand the uh, the the emotion behind it, the anger behind it. But it'd be nice if people thought strategically every now and then, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, it's not going right. to work. And one thing you were saying there about, I mean, there are a lot of people who feel like there's the two coasts and that there's elites on the two coasts. And that's who has the power. That's who has control. And people in the middle don't. I've been there. One of my daughters goes to school in uh, central Pennsylvania. Now she hasn't been there in a while for some strange reason. But uh, <laughs> I know, that, you know, it's Trump country. It is Trump country. And they have legitimate concerns. And I don't think, I don't, in fact... Where is the economy in terms of Biden's campaign? There are a lot of people unemployed, a lot of people being kicked out of their homes, uh, can't afford medical care. Just why is I mean, Biden is not addressing that? That does concern me. And one of the great things I thought about Bernie Sanders, who I supported, of course, was that he can connect mm -hmm. with those same people. And I just they have, you know, the, the people on the, you know, the. Uh, uh, active, you know, the Antifa, some of the Antifa people uh, don't, you know, they're right that uh, the Democratic Party has, to a large extent, gone along with the with the money that there is there and not supported uh, uh, the, the people who have legitimate gripes and about the economy. I, I don't see Biden addressing huge unemployment. I would think that, that the idea of a new New Deal in fact, the Green New Deal would be very, very appealing. But, of course, he runs away from it. We've had so many Democrats that are scared, scared to talk about the real issues. And it's it's funny because they don't want to be seen as too left, but the right wing is calling them left anyway. I mean, they call uh, Biden a socialist, which is really crazy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, really. So do you see any—what are your feelings about what I was just uh, rambling on about? Well, I think I, I agree with everything that you're saying. I think that Sanders did a much better job connecting with 
the disillusionment and desperation of poor Americans who um, who feel disenfranchised and left behind. Um, and in light of that, I think that the fight to the fight to hold government accountable will probably only become more intense when and if Biden um, becomes president, because we don't want to grow. Uh, we don't want to grow apathetic. We don't want uh, to step back and just assume Democrats are going to make the right decisions because obviously they don't always. Um, it's just we won't have this reality TV star, you know, rallying all the left together anymore. We're going to have to do it on our own. Very good point. And that's, you know, just as uh, Nixon was our best organizer against the Vietnam War, Trump has been the best organizer of what you and I might consider left, what used to be considered the center where Eisenhower was domestically. But uh, he, he is quite the organizer. And if Trump, I mean, if, if Biden wins... We can't lay back. As I wish I knew the source of this quote. Politics and protest, both necessary, neither sufficient. We have to keep mm-hmm. it up. We have to make a lot of noise. Now, back to you know violence and, and what's really going on behind the violence uh, that, that Trump's people talk about and, and manipulate the fear of. The unfortunate choice of words in reaction to the police killings of unarmed black people defund the police, is eagerly mm-hmm. scooped up by the Trump campaign, manipulating fear again. But the reasons behind the call are to defund are quite significant. I think they mean move the funds elsewhere, you know, take away some of the social service jobs that police are now required to do and give it to people who are more right. professional at that, you know. Uh, the reasons behind the call to defund are very significant. You write that the police now regularly armed by the Pentagon, the police armed by the Pentagon with weaponry and other equipment sometimes taken from this country's distant war zones, increasingly wage a kind of proto-counterinsurgency warfare on our streets, end of quote. It does seem to me that most Americans have no understanding of the term police state. What Talk about the threat of militarization of our local police. It's really happened. Well, as the Cost of War Project in its in a September um, paper um, a couple weeks ago has shown vast amounts of military-grade weapons have been returned to the to, given to the police forces in the United States. But then beyond that, like you alluded to in your comment, Bert, the police are given so many of the social service jobs that others would do better. Um, I'm a mental health therapist. I work in a community mental health clinic in Maryland and can't tell you how many times the police are basically on the front lines of healthcare and that they're responding to 911 calls um, related to mental health. Um, doing safety checks, um, being called on um, by people just standing by to come in and to de-escalate a mental health crisis when somebody has a psychotic episode on the street. I think that that's a good example of of how instead of 
taking money away from the police. We should be diverting funds and, and resources, possibly from the war zones, to public agree. health causes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll also say that a lot of communities in the inner city, especially communities of color, don't really agree with that initiative to defund the police because it's taking away one of their, if not their sole source of protection. But then again, like why not, you know, fund higher quality public schools in those neighborhoods, fund mental health clinics, fund the kinds of things that will keep um, the drug trade and gangs and family violence from escalating to begin with. Yeah, and there's that old quote attributed to Einstein, uh, that definition of insanity is keep on doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. <laughs> exactly. And the other, I don't know who this quote is from, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, and if the, yeah. if, if, if the police, local police, you know, they, they feel under attack, no question about it. And they're concerned, they're scared, uh, and they have all this military equipment. Uh, there has to be some kind of way around that. I, I don't know. But uh, And again, the term police state, I really, I know what it is because I grew up Jewish and knowing about the police state in the Third Reich. Uh, but I don't think people understand what a police state is. I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Your, your thoughts about the prospect of a police state and whether people know about it or not. Well, I think that... You know, I've I've lived and worked in Russia, where you know a police state has been the reality for good friends of mine and colleagues of mine who grew up in the Soviet Union and who now see its resurgence in, in Putin's Russia. And you know, that means that, among other things, that ordinary conflict not armed conflicts, but disagreements um, could be resolved (laughs) by a knock on your door um, in the middle of the night, by um, losing your job and getting blacklisted from other similar jobs. I mean, there's no end to the creativity uh, of a police state in terms of ways that they can, um, (laughs) they, they can destroy your life if, say the wrong thing or if you criticize the wrong person. Um, I wouldn't even know where to begin um, to describe that. But I will say that even for people like me, white, highly educated, upper middle class, privileged people, living in a police state is not easy. It means that that if you criticize your boss uh, because he touched you, um, at work in the wrong way. Uh-huh. Um, you, your family could face retaliation. It means that you shouldn't necessarily keep a blog um, online, even if you feel disillusioned with one of your government's policies, um, because anything could happen. Um, somebody close to you um, could get hurt, um, and you wouldn't really know who to trace it to, but um, you'd be pretty sure that it was because of something you did. In other words, even for pe- people who are privileged, in a police state, yes. you live with a constant undercurrent of fear. 
Well, that certainly happened in uh, Nazi Germany, and I assume in uh, the old Soviet Union, and there's that old film, The Lives of Others, about East Germany. Uh, police state is like the antithesis of we, what we think America is. But we're, I mean, here we are talking about it, uh, giving, you know, militarizing police, giving them tremendous power, and seeing, you know, it as us against them, enemies within our country. It just, it is very disturbing for sure, but it's good to look at it. It's good to understand it. You know, we can't fight back until we really understand things. And I do find, as people have often heard me said, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. And a lot of the people on the right really like uh, Joe McCarthy and what he did. They thought he was a hero. And so we haven't learned from that and what the danger is there. It's, it's pretty amazing. And uh, again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking with Andrea Mazzarino, whose uh, book is, uh, uh, whose new article on Tom Dispatch is War Zone America. Perspectives on a Riven Nation from a Worried Military Spouse. Now, as I mentioned, my kids have grown up, pretty much. Uh, millennials, young people, to me, offer no small degree of hope. They know Black Lives Matter. They've left homophobia in the dust. What about young kids living through the COVID era? As you point out, people with social distancing, quote, you don't get to interact with people whose lives and perspectives are different from yours. You say this might become one grim sectarian legacy of COVID-19 pandemic in a country that looks like it might be starting to come apart at the seams. How might that inability to interact with others actually exacerbate the dissolution? Well, I mean, I'll take my, my young kindergartner as an example. We recently moved from um, a, pretty, a very diverse town, Rockville, where white kids were the minority um, at his preschool to a town where his kindergarten classroom is quite diverse, but he only gets to see them as little occasional thumbnails on the computer screen. Mm, mm -hmm. We have online schooling. And I think from his perspective, his privileged perspective, he hasn't seen much difference between himself and kids who are African-American or African or Latino, um, his, his assumption has been that's, that's just my friend. Obviously, the classroom looks different to children of color, but from my son's perspective, everybody is just as worthy as attention and fair treatment as everybody else. And I think that's going to be harder work to do um, for for parents to do now that kids are isolated in their rooms, mm. staring at computer screens, where media is still focused on you know white culture and white lives, and it's a lot harder for for teachers to convey a picture of the world as it is, as as diverse as as it is on a on a kid's computer screen. I think we learn about each other's humanity when we share yes. spaces. Boy, I'll say we do. And, you know, I know a lot of people who have been homophobic because they they didn't know that they knew people who were homosexual. The people fear what they don't know. And like, you know, racism as well. 
the old southern planters i can understand being afraid of the slaves rising up yeah but you know you gotta interact with other people and realize hey you know they're just other people the reason for a big military of course is to keep us safe at home we've now spent trillions on forever wars since 9-11 you call that a sinkhole for our tax dollars what could have been more effective use of that money in terms of real national security, protecting Americans from the danger and death? Well, as my Cost of War project colleagues, Catherine Lutz and Nita Crawford, emphasized in their recent op-ed, more effective would have been spending the, the federal dollars we've spent on these wars on shoring up our healthcare budget for this pandemic. Would think? I mean, we would. <laughs> we would have had ample masks, ventilators, um, healthcare personnel um, to weather this pandemic far more effectively um, had we invested uh, the money that we had invested in, in war um, elsewhere, such as in our healthcare system. Um, that's that's the first example um, that that comes to mind. Well, there's not an, there's not as much money to be made in that field, whereas the weapons contractors have powerful lobbyists, as you know, and can make tremendous amounts of money and influence their members of Congress. It goes on and on. What what's the inherent danger of the their degradation, the Trumpers' degradation of what they call political correctness? in the context of possibly starting a civil war, what is meant by the political correctness that the Trumpists so hate and revile? What about this political correctness? Well, I think political correctness for you know, people first language, like instead of saying that retard, you say a person with a disability, instead of saying, yes. <laughs> you know, a person who identifies um, as female, you know, we all use gendered language, but I think that what what this hatred of political correctness is, is a hatred of having to see people who are different from you as people, nonetheless. Mm. And I think that um, the YouTube video, like the one my relative posted of an Antifa on fire <laughs> is a perfect example of that hatred for political correctness. It's not just the message of that particular video that, you know, Antifa are foolhardy, stupid, reckless, dumb, um, that mattered um, to somebody like that posting such a video. It's also this sense that I can do whatever I want right. Um, right. because I'm an American. I think that's a big part of it actually is the, the individualistic versus the common good that our founders sought to uh, protect, the common good. And, uh, you know, they feel like I can do whatever I want with my land. You know, like, for example, forget the environmental regulations. I can dump lead in the water. I can have nuclear reprocessing, whatever. I can do what I want. But And it's it's a lack of having any care about the community in which you live. I think that's interesting. And part of that is the Trumpists see Trump as sent by God. The context of a holy war is exceptionally unattractive 
your comments and thoughts about that? Well, I think it's just laughable that we see somebody who boasts publicly uh, about grabbing women's genitals as sent by God. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's just amazing that Trumpists would choose this as would choose this man as their prophet when there is no one, no group um, that he has he he has shown steady respect for um even people of his own party who criticize him yeah, really. i mean I, I i i really i i don't get it um i think that republicans have gotten as far as they have because they are disciplined voters they yes. don't require purity tests, um to, to vote for their candidate the way democrats do oh, i know um but I think that's just taking it one step too far. I think that's justifying um, support for somebody who is just abominable using, you know, Christian religious language that so as to make him above criticism. I, I, I don't know what they're thinking, but it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it, it is bizarre. An old friend of mine, Abby Hoffman, said uh, the relationship between the right and left is perfect. The right is sadistic, the left is masochistic. It works out perfectly. <laughs> we tear ourselves apart. And you're from yeah. a, a military family. You conclude your essay with this observation and worry. Military families, most so much more than mine, have already suffered for far too long without watching our country become a new war zone. End of quote. Trump has scorned the military. Amazingly, Trump supporters love him for his imagined support from military personnel. He loves weapons and the military domination that comes with wars, but he's repeatedly insulted military personnel, losers and suckers. We all know he said that. Many other countries rely on the military to save them from really bad guys. After being roped into that Trump Bible photo op, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, said he regrets the link with domestic politics. If Trump loses and he refuses to leave the White House, you are in a military family, you know some military people, you probably have a lot better sense than me or anybody listening. Which way will the military go? Look into your crystal ball, please. I have no idea, but I think all I can say is that I think that the members of the military are going to have to make some really, really tough decisions and that obedience to orders and respect for authority is so deeply ingrained in military culture that um, I have a hard time <laughs> imagining how a military such as it is there might be defectors can't fall in line with the commander-in-chief so i anticipate a lot of stress um a lot of a lot of soul searching and a very very bloody outcome if Trump um, retains power and does the unthinkable and escalates the use of force among, amongst American citizens. What do you think the chances are of the military escorting Trump out? 
I don't know, but uh, <laughs> as, a, as an individual, I mean, let me just say that my spouse tells me very little about what goes on. Uh-huh. Um, I don't, I'm not privy to secret information, but I think they'll escort him out. I think what happens on American streets between Trump supporters right. and protesters is, is of greater concern. Yeah. It certainly is of great concern. Who'd have thunk we'd ever be talking about this stuff? Thank you so much, Andrea Mazzarino. You write, if people want to read more of your uh, thoughts and observations. Well, I'm, I'm writing only right now for Tom Dispatch, but I will keep you posted if something else comes out. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, we all, I have not met your kids, but let's, I certainly wish them the best life ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bert. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Construction in the fields of bodies burning. world stops turning as you hear the bodies burning no more war pigs have the power and as God has struck the hour day of judgment God is calling on their knees the war pigs crawling Spreads his wings. 